You guys, welcome to episode 77 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives in the well-known, and more importantly, not so well-known. Whoa! I, it was the first time I've ever stuttered over that. Hookups of your favorite reality TV stars, and I'm not cutting it out because this is a raw and real podcast. Um, it's me, Troy McKeady. How are you? Good to hear it. I'm a little shook right now that for the first time in 76 episodes, I couldn't get through the uh, the opening. It's a little... It's a little shocking. I hope it's not a sign to how this this episode will go. Um, It can't. Actually, it can't be. Because, you guys, this is another... This is a milestone event. This is an episode that I... I just said episode. Things are already happening. We're We're three seconds in and things are already happening. This is an episode that I would compare to... I mean, it's... It's a... It's a juggernaut episode. It's, like, up there with, like, the Madonna. I took more... I took as many pages of notes for this episode as i did for madonna's and it's deserved 100 percent, you guys I- i'm not even going to bullshit you or like try and like with with no whether further ado or whatever <laughs> you guys we're talking about mariah carey and tommy matola today and this is um this is something again this is one of those couples that i wanted to talk about for a very very long time and this just felt very daunting and i needed to be able to do this during a time when i had like more time than i normally do to just devote to research and taking notes and um you know 19 pages later I, here i am um all enjoyed i loved every moment of it i've gone back and watched a lot of youtube videos lots of old music videos um I'm I'm living in 1997 right now. I'm just this is, oh, this is so great. And I I I mean it's been a long time coming that we talk about Mariah Carey on this podcast. I mean it only took us 76 weeks, my God. But we're here, and um, you know I always say, and I've said this a million times, that usually like I'll go back and listen to old episodes, and that's how I figure out who I want to do next because I'll sort of passively mention them or something, and in the episode that I m- recorded with Maria um, uh, about Benifer, we talked a little bit about Mariah Carey and how, you know, uh, Tommy Matola used Jennifer Lopez to try and derail Mariah's career after they divorced um, by kind of stealing songs from her and, you know, using lawyers to scare her out of not putting songs on her albums and giving them to Jennifer and I was like, why not talk about Mariah? Why not talk about Mariah and Tommy, like the elephant in the room during that episode? Um, so here we are. And yeah, we're going to get into all of it. The abuse allegations, the, I mean, the music inspired by, you know, this is really great. And I love doing episodes where we talk about the first portion of somebody's career where they're like not a star yet. I just think it's like so interesting to talk about how a person was discovered and all those things. Um and obviously, you know, Tommy Matola has such a, a a big part of Mariah Carey's um, introduction into the music industry. And, uh, yeah, I guess we can go ahead and just get started. Um, Mariah and Tommy started dating in May of 1991, and uh, they were engaged by December of 92. Um, they were married in June, and the following year they separated in May of 97. Um, yeah, I mean, look... Uh, I don't, even, I don't even know what to say. Like, they are so prolific in a way that sets them above a lot of couples that I've honestly spoken about on this podcast, because this relationship was so transformative, <clears throat> not only for Mariah, not only for both Mariah and Tommy, um, you know, who were 
obviously two extremely powerful and iconic figures in the pop culture zeitgeist, but it also gave us Mariah Carey. You know what I mean? Not only in the sense that he discovered her, but this breakup created our version of Mariah Carey. Like, the diva, you know, the Mariah who's known for wearing, like, Gucci pumps and a high slit and um, a bang covering her left eye. Like, this breakup transformed Mariah into who she was meant to be and it's I'm not it's not to say that like he's the reason that she became this person but like in a sense he is in the best and worst way possible and you know it's hard to imagine you know who Mariah would have become had she not had this sort of caterpillar to butterfly experience by the way pun intended because we will be talking very heavily about Mariah's music um you know but to use shorthand for many of you who listen to this podcast, and I know that you'll get it, and I don't have to really go into detail, he was her K-Fed. Tommy was Mariah's K-Fed. She came out a different person. You know, her her morals, her belief system, her standards, her values, uh, you know, he forced her to change the way she saw herself and the way she sort of existed in this world. Um, she came out of this relationship like Uma Thurman crawling out of her own shallow grave. And I'm proud of her. I really am. You know, there are things about Mariah that I've made fun of throughout the years. And, you know, like, I'll go back and watch old videos and just laugh to myself at how ridiculous Mariah is. And, I'll, you know, Mariah's outfits can be a little ridiculous. Like, she's just so extra and over the top. And I always say that Mariah Carey looks stuffed like a sausage and not having anything to do with her weight but just she looks uncomfortable she's always wearing clothes that are like a couple sizes too small no matter what her weight is and she just looks all the time like she's holding on for dear life to keep it together you know what i mean to look perfect for every hair to be in place for the for the slit to be hitting the perfect spot for her feet to be perfectly placed in the red carpet she's just a ball of really intense sort of insecure energy to me and after doing research for this episode, it made me realize that she has every right to be. You know what I mean? Like, this is a woman who was held captive in a mansion for years by a man who abused her. And yeah, we're going to talk about all the things. Um, Mariah met Tommy at a party uh, that she was attending basically to try and, like, get her demo out there. And he fell in love with her pretty imme- pretty immediately. Um I mean, they started, they allegedly started dating while she was recording her Music Box album, but I'm pretty sure um, he sunk his claws into Mariah as soon as he met her, and it's not like she was dating anyone. He was married, but he did divorce his wife to be with her, um, and, you know, speaking of divorces, they had one of the most talked about, not only marriages and iconic celebrity marriages, any celebrity marriage list you ever pull up, whether it's for being tacky or over the top or expensive or whatever, um, lavish as they call it, um, this will always be on the list. It's, it's, it's prolific. Um, and yeah, and also one of the most iconic divorces in celebrity history. So let's get into it. We're back to our old ways. Gen- you know, ladies first, Tommy's gonna have to wait. I've got a lot of things to say about Mariah Carey, so we're gonna start with her. Your girl was born in Huntington, New York. Uh, Her dad, Roy, was half black and half Venezuelan, and her mother, Patricia, was Irish. As we all know, you know, Mariah Carey's race plays such a huge part in who she is as an artist and a public figure. Uh, She's one of the first 
she's one of the first, to be honest with you, celebrities to really address and embrace being mixed race. And um, I think that Mariah Carey, for a, a lot of people, put a face and a personality to a mixed race person in a way that hadn't really been done before. She was so open and candid and not like <clears throat> to be ignorant and say that like we've never seen a mixed person in in Hollywood. It's ridiculous. But Mariah was very open about the discrimination she faced as a mixed person who was not black enough and not white enough and and you know social circles where she was around white people who who also thought she was white. She would hear them be very racist. And use the N-word, not knowing that she was black. I mean, she just went through many, many years as a young person not knowing where she fit in. And that's a struggle that so many mixed people feel. And Mariah really helped kind of uh, materialize those feelings for a lot of people. Um, her mother was a very famous opera singer and a vocal coach. Um, after she met Mariah's father, her mother was disowned by her family for making... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for marrying a black man. It almost sounded like I was going to say making love to a black man. I wish that that is what I wrote in my notes. Um, and this is also something that, you know, this played a huge part in who Mariah became as an artist. Uh, she felt extremely abandoned by a large portion of her family because she was, you know, the product of this, uh, this, this union that they didn't want to happen and all these racist people that she was related to, that she hated, that they didn't even know her, or that they, you know, and they hated her. It was a whole thing. Um, Mariah's mother discovered that she could sing while she was rehearsing for her role as Madalena in the opera uh, Rigelto? Rigolto? I don't know. It's French or something. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's Italian. Uh, Patricia missed a cue, and Mariah immediately picked up where her mom like left off and she in a perfect register sang uh an italian lyric uh mariah was barely four years old and her mother was like oh okay so she's gonna be a singer like okay um her parents got divorced when she was three years old and the family separated her sister went to live uh with her father and uh while mariah and her brother stayed with her mom I'm sorry, I think I got that wrong. Her brother went to live with her dad, and her sister stayed with her and her mother. And um, over time, she slowly became disconnected from her dad to the point that they completely didn't have a relationship at all. Um, Mariah describes her father as being extremely strict, the strictest of disciplinarians, um, like almost military-like, and... Um, she also describes him, you know, he taught his children these really, really intense, like, military-based uh, table etiquette manners for children, where, like, nobody was spoken unless they were spoken to, basically by him. And in a 1998 Rolling Stone interview, interview she said, I was a more free spirit. My mom kind of shielded me from that. And I loved singing. I was singing since I started talking. I couldn't help it. I have music going going on in my mind at all times. So I was singing on the t at the table, and my brothers and sisters were just like... And then she gave, like, a face of, like, being annoyed. Her brothers and sisters were annoyed that she was singing. And um, her father said, uh, there's going to be no singing at this table. So I got up from the table, and I went to the living room. I stood up on the coffee table and continued singing at the top of my lungs. I guess that was an early indication of who I was going to become. Uh, she attended Harborfield High School, where she studied music, and she started 
writing poetry. You know, she slowly transitioned into adding melodies to her poetry, which is like what all great songwriters do. Um, and there was a lot of a lot of uh, uh, focus put on her voice. You know, they wanted to train her voice, especially after it was discovered that she had this five octave range and that you know she could hit these uh, these whistle notes. That her mom actually couldn't even hit. Um, her mom trained her to learn how to control her whistle register. So it became like this very coveted, protected thing. You know, it was all about pr- protecting Mariah's instrument. Um, and she actually taught her how to sing opera as a teenager. And uh, in a 1995 Washington Post interview, she said, I felt like I was doing music on a level that a lot of different that was a lot different than a high school kid. She said, I was working with professional musicians in studios and I took it very seriously. I didn't want to mix school with that. I didn't want to be in a production of Annie Get Your Gun. I wanted to make songs that could go on the radio. Uh, Mariah moved herself into a one bedroom apartment that she shared with four other female students and she also started recording music for the first time, like in a studio, like professionally for a demo tape. Uh, she was working as a waitress and a coat check girl. Uh, she kept getting fired from all these different places because she didn't really care about. She only really wanted to make enough money to go record music. And once she had a full demo, she went out and started passing it around to different people. Um, now I'm going to mention right here before we jump over to Tommy that I have some really interesting conspiracy theories about Mariah's family. If you're a reader of the gossips, you may know them already. If not, then I'll inform you. But I don't want to get into them until the end of the episode because <laughs> they're dark. I mean, it's it's not something that 13 minutes in I want to start with. You know what I mean? I don't want to like lead us down this super dark path, like, immediately. I'd love to ease into that or maybe end with it. You know what I mean? A little dessert at the end of the episode. Um, But, yeah, uh, you know, your boy loves to dip his toe into a conspiracy, and you know that. Like, this is partially a conspiracy theory podcast. I don't even know if you guys realize that or not, but, like, you've been subscribed for 77 weeks to a mel gibson in the movie conspiracy theory inspired podcast really i mean there's only most of the things i i write or write about i talk about obviously i read from like gossip sites but uh yeah i mean i love conspiracies i love them i love conspiracy theories i love weeding through them i love trying to find connections between conspiracy theories with certain celebrities and the conspiracy theories of other celebrities because to me it helps validate them and yeah we're gonna get into an extremely extremely dark conspiracy theory before this episode is over so if you are a patreon subscriber good for you if not you're gonna have to ask one of your friends who is a patreon subscriber or you could just subscribe yourself or whatever um now this is one of those weird cases where the person we very clearly have more interest in Uh, was basically an unknown before meeting their second half. So we're going to jump over to Tommy and talk about him for a little bit because, you know, I I didn't really know that much about Tommy Mottola before starting this. I mean, what I know about him is based on his interactions with other people. So this was fascinating for me. Um, So while Mariah was shopping her demo around in New York City, she was introduced to this rising Latino pop star named Brenda K. Starr. And Brenda hired Mariah to sing backup for her in the 80s. Um, She also took on the role of, like, mentor 
basically for Mariah Carey. It became a really big deal for her that Mariah get signed. You know, she really believed in her talent and she, you know, she she put her neck out there so that Mariah could meet all these people that she would never ever have the opportunity to be in a room with. Um Brenda had also already had a couple Billboard chart singles. Um she was, you know, she was established in the industry in the 80s. And in December of 1988, Brenda, and now this is a, a real Cinderella story. Any, I mean, this is pretty much any article that you'll ever read written about Mariah Carey and Tommy Mottola will mention this story. It is an actual Cinderella story. Um, Brenda invited Mariah as her plus one to a record, ex- record executives gala. Um, they brought a bunch of copies of her demo and the goal, obviously, was to hand out the demo to a bunch of, of powerful people in this room and uh, get a record deal, or at least a meeting. Uh, so Mariah was introduced to a man named Jerry Bre- Jerry Greenberg, who was the head of a music label that no longer exists, but at the time he was really powerful. And she went to go hand him her demo, and all of a sudden this man comes up and swipes it out of her hand, and it was Tommy. And uh, she said in a 1995 Washington Post article, it was such a quick, weird thing. Jerry's hand went in, or she said Jerry's hand went out, and then Tommy's hand came in from the side, and he just grabbed it from me. He literally just took it. And uh, so then Tommy leaves the party. Uh, He pops the demo in his cassette player. Now, what I picture is that, like, a a coked-out, 80s Tommy Mottola is like speeding through traffic in some fucking douchebag Ferrari like cutting people off and like driving you know 100 miles an hour down like Mulholland Drive and as the story goes he popped the tape into his cassette player he didn't get through two songs before stopping his car in the middle of traffic um, making the driver turn around he sped back to the party Because he wanted to find her and tell her, like, I want to sign you to a label. I want to put money into you. I want to make you my muse. Like, he wanted to put his all into this girl. And by the time he got back to the party, Mariah, who was feeling discouraged because she wasn't getting a lot of feedback from the people there, she left. So he went back. He searched for her. He was asking where she was. And she had left. So... Tommy spent two weeks tracking Mariah down and finally was able to obtain her phone number. Mariah said, he left this message on my machine. This is Tommy Matola, CBS Records. Call me back. Bye. And she said, after you've waited so long to hear a call like that, it was just sort of shockingly abrupt. And in his book, Tommy said, I found myself staring into the, into the brown eyes that were staring back at me in a way that felt like they were demanding my attention. I listened to that demo in the car and on... On the way to the on the way to, ugh, god damn it! I listened to that demo in the car on the way from on the way. Oh, oh, god damn it! I listened to that demo in the car on the way home from the party. <laughs> An unbelievable energy was running through me, screaming, "Turn the car around! Turn the car around! This is the best vo- best voice I've ever heard in my entire life." Now again. Everything that I know about Tommy Mottola is based on his relationships with Jennifer Lopez, Mariah Carey, and Talia, the Latin pop sensation. I don't know anything else about him. All I know is that he's abusive, he's psychotic, and uh, 
uh, I mean, that he reminds me of, like, Scarface in a lot of ways. Like, I feel like he has... I feel like when you walk in a t- into a Tommy Mottola's office, you're greeted by, like, a, a Tiffany's tray of cocaine, and there's, like, maybe a machine gun in a cabinet somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's ha- he's definitely had people whacked. And this is where Hollywood is very interesting, because I bet his whack guy is the same as Charlie Sheen's. You know, lines get crossed. Um, so... Tommy was born and raised in the Bronx, okay? He had a very normal childhood. Uh, He went to Hofstra University in Long Island, and he started off his career as a member of an R&B group called The Exotics, which I live for. Um, He was hired in 1988 by CBS Records to run the entire U.S. operation and sign new talent. He replaced... The chairman in 1990, and the label was brought was bought out by Sony, which resulted in the obvious name change. And during this time at Sony, he sort of transformed it into one of the most powerful and most successful glo- global music corporations in the world. Um, one of his biggest sort of individual contributions to Sony was that he revitalized their publishing division by buying all these really important catalogs of music. Uh, which included, uh, you know, the coveted Beatles catalog, which has gone back and forth between the hands of Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, and Tommy Mottola. Um, And because of him, Sony became the world's first major music company to make digital downloads available, which was a huge deal. Uh, Tommy is known for helping develop the careers of Celine Dion, uh, Destiny's Child, who else did I read? Jessica Simpson, the Dixie Chicks, uh, Shakira, etc. I mean, he also is credited for the uh, the Latin explosion of the 90s, which was the trifecta of Mark Anthony, Ricky Martin, and Jennifer Lopez. You know, he worked with Michael Jackson on his Dangerous album and became an integral part of Michael's development as an artist, you know, just throughout the 90s and the rest of his career. Um, you know, Michael very famously retaliated against Sony before he died. He referred to Tommy as the devil and, uh, you know, he basically told everybody that he thought Tommy was a racist and that he hated black people and, uh, just all this crazy stuff. You know, he really, he died hating Tommy Mottola. Um, and then he pretty immediately threw himself I'm sorry, he threw Mariah into the pop machine. You know, he started landscaping what the rest of her career would look like. And his ultimate goal was to sort of turn Mariah into, um, you know, the main female pop artist on the label so that she could compete with Whitney and Madonna. That was the goal. At the time, you had about five women you know, including Madonna, Janet Jackson, Whitney Houston, and Mariah, um, who, and, like, Celine Dion, who were really dominating, like, female pop music in all these different ways, and when it came to, like, being a visual pop star, that was, like, you know, that was Madonna and Janet. The voices were Whitney and, uh, and, uh, Celine, and Mariah, you know, she was sort of trying to find her place in that that weird sort of, uh, not pop, not contemporary, not R&B, that weird sort of place that she was sort of, uh, became known for. Um, 
He also hired a team of, like, the top producers of the 90s and the 80s uh, to help sort of cultivate her sound. Her debut album, Mariah Carey, was released on June 12th of 1990. And, you know, she had five successful singles from the album, the most iconic obviously being Vision of Love, and it was her introduction into the public. And the crazy thing is, like, I've not really read... After profiling so many people on this podcast, I've never really seen anything like this before. But the label had so much faith in Mariah, just based on her talent and her look, her voice, basically, that they gave her, like, over a million dollars to promote the album without really even knowing anything about her, um, which ended up being one of the biggest, if not the biggest, record deal of the decade. I mean, it was unheard of. And... This guy, Ben Margulies, was a producer who was brought in to work with Mariah at the time. Um, you know, after she took a real liking to him. They became really good friends and sort of um, uh, creative counterparts with each other. She ended up asking the label if he could produce the entire album, which Tommy was against. He said no, um, but he did help co-write seven of the 11 songs on the album. And in an interview, he said... Uh, when we met, she was 17 years old and I was 24. We worked together for a three-year period, developing most of the songs on her first album. She had the ability to just hear things in the in the air and to start to start developing songs out of them. It was so strange. Often I would sit down and start playing something, and from the feel of a chord, she would start singing melodies and lines and coming up with an entire concept. Before I knew it, she would have an entire song created. Um... Mariah also, she had some issues with all these producers sort of stepping in in the making of this album, you know, and sort of changing the development of it. Um, You know, she had these demos that she had worked so hard on. And these weren't demos where, like, you know, she was, like, at some guy's house, like, recording ditties. Like, she was being trained by professionals. Her mother was a professional voice coach who took music very serious. She was leaving school to do you know, voice lessons with all these professionals. Like, this wasn't a joke to her. And I think the label had this idea of who she was that didn't match who she was at all. You know, even though she was this amazing singer, at her core, Mariah was a songwriter, and she felt really confident in her ability to not only write songs, but produce them. Like, this was a girl who was like, I can go into the studio and do this whole thing on my own if I want to. Like, I only need you guys for, like, the backing. Um, But that wasn't how they viewed her. You know, she was shy. She was very reserved. She was in in a place in her life, I think, where she felt lucky to be there. You know what I mean? Which, I mean, anybody can relate to. You know that feeling of when you get a job that you really love or you're in a position that you think is, like, sort of above what you deserve. And you just, you know, you are you have that lucky-to-be-there attitude where you'll just take whatever because you don't feel like you even deserve to be in the same room as a lot of those people. I think it was one of those situations. Um, in a Washington Post interview that she did in 1995, she said, It took away some of my identity. When I go back and listen to the demos, in some ways I think they're better than the album. Um, just in terms of the simplicity, it seemed to be more real and, and innocent. And once we got big name producers involved, it took on another quality. It did very well for me, so I'm not saying anything bad about it, but it just changed. And uh, her television debut came in 1990 at the NBA playoffs, where she sang America the Beautiful. She was then flown 
all over the United States and all over Europe to promote the album. They put a shit ton of money into her promotion. So she was out there every single day in some part of the world hawking this album. She had back-to-back performances of Vision of Love on Arsenio Hall and The Tonight Show. And something really, really fucking interesting that you guys will love that I read about Vision of Love um, as a single is that it introduced the mainstream world to a singing technique called melisma, which I had never heard of, but we all know what it is. I just didn't know that there was a technical name for it. It's essentially, it's vocal riffs. It's a person who, you know, a song is written a certain way, and if you looked at the melody and you looked at the chords that were written, it would be one thing, but then the person sings it and they do riffs, like Beyonce, like Celine, like Mariah, like Christina. Um, It's just vocal riffing, but it's called melisma. And it's what, um, you know, it's what Mariah obviously became known for, but the really interesting thing is that it, it did sort of introduce the world to this new style of singing in a mainstream way. Like, Vision of Love is credited, even, like, in Guinness, as being the song that introduced the world to this melisma-style singing, which is so crazy to me. Um, the Mariah Carey album became the first album since the Jackson 5 to have... Four singles reached number one, and it went on to become the best-selling album of the year, with 15 million albums sold. And, uh, you know, I read a quote while researching for this album from Rolling Stone that said, The fluttering strings of notes that decorate songs like Vision of Love inspired the entire American Idol vocal school, for better or for worse, and virtually every other female R&B singer since the 90s. You guys, I hate to cut you off, but at this point, I think you know the drill. You've got to be a Patreon member to hear the remainder of this episode. So go to patreon.com slash ebpsychos. At that point, you will uh, be asked to donate. And then when you donate at this level, you'll get this podcast. You'll get the remainder of all the episodes every single week. You'll get Liz Bentley's Feathers in My Hair, which is the Teen Mom podcast. Um, You'll get me and Molly's uh, Brittany and Kevin Chaotic special. You'll get all the stuff that Molly does exclusively through Patreon. It's well worth it. And also, if you're not a member of our Facebook group, go to mollyandthepsychos.com. It'll take you straight to it. And uh, all we do all day and all night is talk about reality TV. It's super fun. So, like I said, patreon.com slash ebpsychos and mollyandthepsychos.com. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.